turn around look at what you see in her face the mirror of your dream make believe i'm everywhere given in the light written on the pages is the answer to What up, guys? Welcome to a new episode of the Bengals Insiders Podcast. Braden here, and Blake is not with us today. He's a lazy bum. Instead, we have Nathan from the Instagram page, Cincy underscore Bengals underscore Daily. So, Nathan, thanks for joining the podcast. I know you're a busy man, got a lot to do, so we appreciate you taking the time out of your night and coming on. Thank you for having me. So we got some stuff to talk about today. I want to start off this episode by talking about a post that National Mock Drafts had on Instagram. If you follow him, you know he's kind of been the big Instagram scout for the last few years. He's apparently retiring from that. But he had a post today that he showed the effects of the trade that the Bengals and Vikings had in 2017 draft. And this was honestly such a small trade that it's easy to forget, but the Vikings traded up, and I'm going to look at it exactly. Yeah, the Vikings traded up from the 48th pick to the 41st pick to get Dalvin Cook, and they gave us their 48th pick, honestly, and the 128th pick. And the Vikings, as I just said, drafted Dalvin Cook, then we drafted Joe Mixon, the 48th, and we used their 128th pick the draft Josh Malone, the wide receiver out of Tennessee, who had kind of a quiet year, but he kind of asked who wanted to trade in. Am I being biased when I say it's easily the Bengals? No, not at all. Because my standpoint on it is that Dalvin Cook, his rookie year, he had a phenomenal start to it, but of course injuries and he couldn't stay on the field. Same thing happened to begin this season. Um, injuries have always, the pro- thing is injuries, you know, we'll take, we'll take Keenan Allen, for example, the beginning of his career, he was always injured. And at the same time, he was never considered like a top court, uh, top, uh, wide receiver, but the past two years he's played, um, I believe a full 16 games each season, the past two years. And now people are putting him top 10, top 15, people are considering it much higher because the best ability is availability. And that's something that Dalvin Cook has not had. And from a peer, from a statistical standpoint, even with, assuming Dalvin didn't have those injuries, Joe Mixon is still statistically the better back. And Let's let's say they're even. Forget about comparing Mixon with Cook. Let's just say they're even backs. We also tagged along with Mixon in the trade, Josh Malone. Sure, Josh Malone, you know, hasn't really done much. You know, so far he's just been basically a practice squad player and a depth piece. Um, but regardless, it's still an addition nonetheless. Yeah, and 
it's not like Malone sucks. We saw him flash a little bit his rookie year. He had a, a touchdown against the Colts along with some other catches throughout the season. Didn't get much of an opportunity. I mean, he has the tools. He's 6'2", 6'3". I think his 40 time was in the 4.4s. And last year he was injured. And that was the main thing holding him out. And he's the type of receiver that I think could really benefit in this offense. I think he could have a Reynolds-type role. Wasn't his touchdown against the Bucks? I thought it was, it was he had a preseason touchdown against the Bucks. Oh yeah, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, I remember against the Colts. It was because I was at that game. It was a really frustrating game. Then this was the f- opening drive after the half. It was a third and long. Andy Dalton gets hit as he throws the ball. The ball, the throw looked ugly as hell. I thought it was going to be intercepted, but it ended up being a perfect throw to Josh Malone for a touchdown. Yeah. That's his only regular season touchdown, and that was back in the 2007, yeah, 2017 season. But, yeah, I think he has potential, and I, I'd like to see him be used in the in Zach Taylor's new offense. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of people to fit in with that offense, considering from what we've heard, he's going to be running with three wide receivers. Oh, no, wait. Two wide receivers, one tight end, and running back, one running back. So that's going to be Boyd, and then we're going to have Green, of course. We're going to have Eifert, and then we're going to have Mixon and I'm tired. Okay, I'm forgetting stuff. Uh, Eleven personnel are main use. Three. Three wide receiver, one tight end, and one running back's house technically written, but we're going to be using Eifert a lot in that Y role. Eifert and Ross are going to lining up that wide receiver often. And you might, it's going to be either, it's going to probably be split between Uzama and Sample. Sample is going to go in a lot to be more of the running back, the run blocking uh, tight end. Yeah, I think we should more see sample and 12 personnel, which I think we'll use about 30 to 40% of the time. People think we're going to use it more because Zach Taylor's emphasized the run, but being having an extra tight end on the field doesn't exactly mean that's opening up the running game. If anything, you want a guy like Eifert or Ross out those stretch out the defense. And with a guy like Mixon, that helps out more. Yeah, the one thing about our wide receivers is like it's not necessarily a group that will wow you like after after green and boyd it falls off pretty substantially from a statistical standpoint but i think with um with taylor's offense coming in i think it's going to give a lot more potential to these wide receivers and a lot more room for them to um to to impress coaches and get it get higher up on the depth chart and also make plays within the game. Um, and it's a pretty crowded wide receiver um, group. We have, of course, we have Green and Boyd, then we have Ross, and then we have Erickson, and we have Malone, and then we also have Tate, and we also have um, a couple undrafted rookies this year that are trying to punch their spot into the roster with... Um, Stanley Morgan, and uh, I forget the other guy's name. 
I know who you're talking about. Zach Taylor's talked high of him, highly of him. His name slipped in my mind. Yeah, but same. I've a. I think we end up keeping six wide receivers, and I think Green Boyd, Ross, and Erickson are all locks. I think Mal- I think Malone makes it. I don't think he's a lock, though. I think there is some danger of him being cut if he has a bad training camp and a bad preseason. But it, what's going to be interesting is that six spot between Stanley Morgan and and Tate, and they might keep core. If they do, they'd keep seven receivers, but with Marvin no longer being the coach, I don't think Corey's getting that special teams love anymore. And he was never even great at special teams. So he, I mean, the way, the way I see it is, I mean, he, he wasn't bad by any means at special teams, but I feel like he was getting overhyped a lot at, at being a special teams player because we go, we'd see week after week him have terrible play out wide receiver and the, what we'd always get back is we'd, we'd hear that Marvin and the rest of the staff loves him because of his special team ability, but I never really saw his, his standout special teams ability. I don't, I don't understand why we kept him, even despite Marvin and the rest of the staff claiming he had a very good uh, special teams ability. Yeah. Feggy was the true special teams ace. Doesn't. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're really hurting your wide receiver core because of an average special teams player. I mean, come on. So, yeah, that's why I don't think he'll make the team. But I'm looking at who wins that six wide receiver spot. I, I would prefer Stanley Morgan over Tate just because Tate, Tate's just so unathletic. And honestly, you look at some of the packages he'd be using. You have other people who can be in those packages. And – but it sounds like the Bengals are using Tate in packages, and that's why I'm starting to think that he may get the spot over Stanley Morgan because we really haven't heard about his usage, but we're hearing about Tate. Yeah, ever since we signed Morgan, there hasn't really been a lot about Like, we haven't heard much news about him. No big camp news, no big OTA news, no, like, XYZ, he did this in practice, and yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't heard that stuff. But we've heard from Tate, as you said, that he's been used in lots of red zone packages. Me personally, I would like to see Morgan get the start. Uh, excuse me. I'd like to see Morgan get the roster spot and us getting Tate. Because from from a perspective of just being able to retain both of them, I think. Tate has a much higher chance of surviving on a practice squad without anyone trying to nab him up than um, Morgan does because pre-draft Morgan had a wide variety of draft grade of uh, draft projections. He was going from anywhere from the fourth to the sixth. The, the, he had a wide variety of drafts of uh, draft projections, and although. Media perception on um, players might not be the same as the NFL, the NFL team's uh, perspective, as we saw with um, uh, Mac. He's uh, um, name slipping my mind. I don't know why. Um, Thinking's hard. Yes, it is, especially when it's like midnight. Yeah. 
We record late here at the Bengals Insiders podcast. Mac Wilson, my bad. Oh, yeah. Mac Wilson. As we saw with Mac Wilson, everyone was projecting him to be a, um, you know, a first rounder or second rounder, but he slipped all the way down to the fifth round. And post, I mean, yeah, post draft, what the reasoning we heard for that is that NFL teams and have a very different perspective on them. And he was supposedly getting lots of hype from the media. And back over to Morgan, I think, I think that his talent is much more than just media hype. And I think if we were to put him on the practice squad, I think he would have a much higher chance of getting signed by another team than Autumn Tate would. We saw last year teams had a chance to nab Tate off of waivers after we released him on it was weird because in the beginning of the season, we waived him and put him back on our practice squad. Some people really freaked out about it. We were just kind of laughing, I remember. Then nobody picked him up off waivers because during the season, you're just not going to release somebody for Auden and Tate. Then we eventually signed him back up. Then he did nothing for the season. But yeah, this goes exactly with your point. Nobody is picking up Tate. Stanley Morgan... I think the reason he went on draft was just because the wide receiver class was really deep. And when it's really deep, there's a couple people who were left out. And unfortunately, Stanley Morgan was one of them, but that was fortunate for us. Very fortunate. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Mac Wilson. Let's kind of talk about the draft just because we've never, Blake and I talked about it on the first Bengals Insiders podcast, but everybody has a little different perspective. Back in the beginning of the draft process, I remember this was also when the Bengals had a winning record and they're looking good. We were kind of on feeling more so Devin Bush, and I was liking Mac Wilson. Then throughout the draft process, what made you kind of change your feelings on Devin Bush and Mac Wilson? Because I know as the season went on then the offseason came, we were both kind of getting lower on them. Well, I think Mac Wilson was particularly your, like, the person you hated the most, but... um, Remember, I loved him to start, like, this was, like, week four of the season. I'm getting to that. So, you know, everyone starts scouting before the season is over, of course, and that's what we were doing, and... Around, I believe it was week four, we all started having discussions of what linebackers we liked in the um, upcoming class. I was actually, uh, one of my favorites was Devin Bush, and one of his favorites was Mac Wilson. But as the process, as the season went on, and I continued to see more and more tape on um, Devin Bush, I began to realize that his coverage skills are very are just awful. He um lots of people I don't know why, but people tend to say he has really good coverage and I don't understand that because he always struggles with opening his hips and he's always he always seems to be late on opening his hips as well and is always trailing the receiver rather than covering them. Um there which game was it? I think it was the Ohio State game. Yeah, he, he got was, he was getting destroyed. There was 
he couldn't he couldn't play zone to save his life. He couldn't play man coverage to save his life. He couldn't play that game to save his life. He did an off, and yet I still saw some some people say that that was he did good that uh that he did good that game. I don't. Yeah, I don't because he had a one play where he didn't have terrible coverage, but because Isaiah Prince got beat off the edge, Haskins, Emmett Haskins kind of throw the ball early, but if. And who knows if Haskins maybe wouldn't make the throw regardless, but Bush, there, I know the play people are thinking of, but there should have been a completion on the play, and it wasn't terrible coverage, but it's not like Bush was great on that one play. If you know um, what I mean. Looking back at our draft specifically, um, it's it's kind of looking it's, – it's, I know it's still early, but it's it's not looking – that that good like in terms of helping our team now it's kind of looking shaky because obviously a first round pick Jonah Williams is out for the season so he's not going to help us this season sample we already have Eifer and um Uzama and assuming that Eifer stays healthy the entire season I don't see sample getting too much playing time and regardless I don't I don't really see much of a big role in a, a I don't see much of a big receiving role in uh Taylor's offense so far for a tight for a tight end like sample um however throughout throughout the draft process I thought that um sample actually had really underrated receiving ability and despite having a very lackluster um lackluster career at Washington in terms of receiving I thought it was mainly just when I watched the film to me it just looks like he has a lack of understanding of zones and that that's more teachable than than one than most people think is and um it's it's not the same as separation because separation separation and understanding and understanding of finding a hole in the zone to me at least are two different things and um as well one thing to add on to it is also i don't think the huskies really utilize him that much in the receiving game and then moving forward to pratt pratt obviously he's He's probably going to be our biggest impact rookie out of all the rookies so far because obviously Jonah is going to be out for the season, so he can't make an impact this season. But um, after uh, Pratt, we have Rennell Wren, who I don't see getting much playing time, if any, this season. He's still a very raw player. He's very strong. He's very athletic. I think under the right coaching, we can turn him into something really good, but this season, I just don't see it. It's too early for him. I don't think he's going to make an immediate impact. Um, Moving forward to who is next? Was it? Yeah, it was. You skipped over Ryan Finley. He was the first fourth-round draft pick. Well, I mean, I just did Pratt. So then we move over to Finley. Um, Let's skip that because he's not going to do anything. He is very weak arm strength and lots of – a, co- a common misconception about arm strength is when someone says arm strength. Like, if I told you XYZ has good arm strength, 
most people actually like most of the casual fans tend to think that's how far you can throw it like Brett Favre or Patrick Mahomes chucking it down the field that's not what arm strength is arm strength is the ability to obviously chucking down the field is part of arm strength but when I say arm strength what I'm referring to is how fast can they get the ball out how fast can they put the ball in a window how fast can they hit the receiver before the defender catches up and closes whatever was open? How fast can they get their ball to their receiver? And Finley, his arm strength is it's not good. And um, in the NFL, you need to have a good arm strength in order to succeed. When you have a weak arm strength, in the, in the NFL, the windows are much tighter and much and close much faster than in college football. And although Finley in college looks good, he was able to get into the windows, of course. Like I just said, the windows are bigger and they close slower in the in college. But when it get when he gets into the NFL, it's just not gonna work the same. He's not gonna be able to get it to his receivers. And NFL defenses will be able to just shut him down completely. So unless somehow he miraculously gets a whole bunch of arm strength, I don't see him doing much at all. He he could be a good backup, sure, but I don't I don't see him creating. To me he's a dink and dunk player because he's not able to create. He's not able to get the ball out. He's not able to make something out of nothing. Um uh, moving forward, what was it? Uh, you already did a rent, so Michael Jordan. It'd be Michael, Michael Jordan. Jordan, yeah. So Michael oh. Jordan, I mean, <clears throat> to for me, my projected uh, lineup for the offensive line would be Glenn at left tackle. That's a given, and then Bobby at right tackle. That's a given. Billy Price at center. That's a given. John Miller at right guard, which is basically a given right now. And <clears throat> I see uh, Christian Westerman as the lead for the starting left left guard spot by a long shot. But behind him, I also see um, Jerry Jones and potentially uh, Jerry Jones. What? Uh, Judy J- no, God damn it. Um, John Jerry. De- yeah, sorry. My bad. John Jerry. Things and, some um, Bama receivers, I see. <laughs> yep, we're going to put Jerry Judy into that. Uh, Left guard's high. Um, yeah, so I see John Jerry and potentially Hopkins actually competing for uh, the left guard like backup role. Um, to me, I don't. I again with same thing as Ronell Wren. Um, I don't see him doing much this first season. And then we move on to uh, what was next? Travion Williams. I think Travion Williams. From what we've heard, I think he has a chance. Like, I think we don't, we obviously don't know how exactly Taylor's offense is going to work yet. But if, if we're going to put him in as like kind of a one two punch with um, Mixon and use um, Geo as more of a receiving scat back type uh, lineup and lining him out 
at wide receiver. Like we've heard, uh, what was it, a month ago, I think that was reported, that Gio is lining up at wide receiver, and he has a much more versatile role. Um, but anyways, as I was saying, Williams, I think he's not going to make a big impact, but I think maybe if he's put in the right position, maybe 250 yards, three touchdowns, maybe. And then Anderson, he's still recovering from his ACL. Maybe he's healthy towards the end of the season, but I doubt we mix him in that late into the season. And uh, Deshaun, uh, what was his name? Deshaun Davis. Yep. I don't. I don't. I don't like him. He's yeah. To me, he's a, he's an old school linebacker. He. I don't. He's one of the run. He's a run stopper, and I don't see much coverage in him. Like yeah. Coverage ability in him. Yeah. And then Jordan Brown. To be honest, I haven't watched much film on, so I I can't make a um, yeah. proper analysis on that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of glad you brought up that you don't like Davis because I felt like I was in the minority. I mean, I think, I think, Bengals fans for the, the most part seem to like him as a pick. I, I don't mind the pick because he is a linebacker, but I thought there were much better linebacker prospects that offered more upside. Like Tavion Coney, uh, Joe Giles Harris, uh, Texas linebacker. What's his name? Crap, I was really high on this I guy, for, too. I forget. But, uh, he, he was in... I forget his name. Uh, blanking all night. He, he had the second highest 40 at for linebackers at the Combine. I was really high on him for a minute till I went back. Uh, crap, what's his name? I can't... I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think, too. I, he's just... I don't know. My mind's been blinking this entire Gary time. Johnson. Gary Johnson. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, those three linebackers, I was really high on, much higher than Sean Davis. And the, then Davis kind of gets a Teo Spikes comparison. Then I think that kind of overhyped him to Bengals fans. And, and I think he saw it, but I don't – his up utmost ceiling in the NFL is a starting base linebacker who won't be that good. Like if yeah. you have him out in coverage and you like he's less athletic than Preston and I like Preston but he's not very athletic and that shows when he's trying to cover people. Yeah. So um, yeah, I just forgot what it was. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's look take a look ahead. I know it's still very early, but who are some people that you like in the following draft? Ooh. I mean, obviously, it's known if you pay attention to any of my Instagram stories. I love Justin Herbert. If we are to get a quarterback next year, he's really the only one I like right now. Uh, I'm completely not on the Tua hype. I I think his football IQ is insanely overrated. Uh, he doesn't throw a anticipation. He just – I don't – him throwing to the smart receivers, I don't mind, but his teammates make the plays. He doesn't make the – I'm trying to find a good word award. He doesn't make plays. He doesn't, when he doesn't he's, create for the team. Yeah, exactly. Jerry Judy does. Is someone who I really like, but he's kind of an obvious. Um, yeah. Going along with you, Tua. I same same with you. I don't I don't think he's that good. I think he's highly overrated. People are 
seeing him as the number one QB in the class, which I highly disagree with. People like Herbert and arguably Fromm are both better than him. Yeah, let's and, talk about Fromm in a minute because he's kind of a weird prospect as of now. Yeah, um, but as you were saying, I just I just don't agree with um, all the hype Tua has gotten. He plays for obviously Alabama, which is you know that that in itself gives him hype gives him hype and um, but I just to me he he just doesn't possess what an NFL quarterback what an NFL quarterback needs. I just can't describe. His decision making, I mean, it's just. His uh, arm isn't even all that good, too. Yeah, he can throw it deep, but it's not like he's thrown into these tight windows. Yeah. Then, Fromm is weird. I keep. Because Fromm is. Is it fair to say Fromm is a poor man, Jared Goff? Mm, I don't know. Play styles, I mean, there's similar playing style. They both don't move well around in the pocket, both the West Coast quarterbacks, both accurate, both not the best under pressure, but when they have time, they can make good throws. It's not like they suck under pressure. Then there's just not a lot of sexy two from, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but he's going to be one of those quarterbacks who he needs to be in a system. And that doesn't mean that's a bad thing because most quarterbacks are like that in a way, but I think he fits into Zach Taylor style offense and but I mean he's not gonna wow you. He doesn't have a cannon arm. He's accurate and he fits in a West Coast. That's where I'm at with him right now. Moving forward one year further to the future, there's one quarterback you know that I like. <laughs> it's not the one you're thinking of, guys. <laughs> Adrian, Adrian Martinez. Martinez. <laughs> yeah, and the screw Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a big Nebraska fan, um, but don't get me wrong. There's no bias involved when I say I'm a fan of Adrian Martinez. To me, he has the best arm strength in that class. Above everybody in the 20, uh, what is that, 2021 class. Yep. He's... He's got the best arm strength. I think he also has the best decision-making, and he's also got tremendous accuracy as well as being a dual-threat quarterback. Um, to me, I can see... To me, he's already he's already got better accuracy than Lamar Jackson, and he runs... I wouldn't call it a similar play style to Lamar, but I mean... They're, they're comparable play styles. Yeah. And, um... I don't know. So far, all we've had is his uh, freshman season. So obviously, we can't go off a lot yet. But I'm a huge fan of him. I'm yeah, fan. I mean, unfortunately, I'm still going to have to take Trevor Lawrence over him. But people are like, no, tank for Trevor. Wait for two years. I mean, it's not that simple. The Bengals aren't going to do that. Then the Bengals are too good to be a 2-14 and 14 team. So... Yeah, don't expect her. But, I mean, I'm intrigued by Martinez. I did watch a little bit of him. I, I was impressed, and I don't see a reason as of now why he won't be a first-round quarterback in a few years from now. I think something that could possibly hold him back is just a Nebraska supporting cast. I know Stanley Morgan was a help to him, but 
for the past few years, Nebraska's never been great at recruiting. And if you're playing in the Big Ten and you're kind of the only good player on the field, then I mean, from a draft and scouting standpoint, they see you shining compared to all your other teammates that can help, but that can also, when you're trying to make the big throws and they're not being caught because the receivers suck or you don't even have a chance because the offensive line, then that can also come back to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And yeah. Then there's also, I forget his name. I keep forgetting his name, but there's the Iowa defensive end next year who's really good. Oh, yeah. He's got, his name is like S. I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure it begins with an E. It's like his last name's like begins with an E. I don't know. It's it's not a common name. I know that. Yeah. It's Epanisa? I don't AJ Epanisa? Something like that. Let's not butcher his name. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not do that. Kind of uh, going but, back on this year's draft, as I think we kind of covered the big names in. I also, also, I like the Alabama linebacker next year, but hopefully we're not in a position where we need to draft a linebacker next hopefully. year in the first round. I mean, if Nick Vigil can put it together, and he's a guy who has the tools to, and Jermaine Pride is what we think he is, then we have our nickel linebackers. Yeah, we do. We definitely do. Um, one guy that I like in this class, they're, he's um, what school? I think he goes to Baylor. I forget. I forget what school. His name is Denzel Mims. Um, Mims, Mims. I don't know. M I M S. I don't know how to pronounce that. I think it's Mims. Um, but I don't. I don't know. Um, if we're necessarily going to be able to, like, if we're we're going to need a wide receiver then, because right now it's definitely looking packed. But however, if something happens, maybe I don't know. I don't know. I but mean, if John Ross to... struggles again, then. Yeah, if John Ross struggles again. I have very, very high expectations for John Ross this year. Like, very, very high expectations. Because my, the way I see it, I say the way I see it a lot. Um, but the way I see it is that um, he, his, his rookie year, obviously only 17 snaps. All can, and this year basically was his red basically was his red shirt rookie year right because you know yeah but you know by nba standards you know he is a rookie (laughs) yeah (laughs) ben simmons um so this year his red shirt rookie year um he he goes out two games what was it three three games excuse me um he um he plays half the year with Jeff Driscoll, a QB who uh is probably worse at throwing than Lamar Jackson, in my opinion. Um and still despite missing time, being his basically first year on the field, playing half the year with a backup who struggles to throw, uh he still had a one to three touchdown catch ratio and scored seven touchdowns, which is the tied for the most, I believe. Tied for the most with Boyd, or maybe Boyd has a I don't know, I forget. No, Boyd has seven. Okay, anyways, so he tied for the most on the team despite missing time, basically being his first year, 
and he uh, played half the year with a QB who struggled to throw. And a stat, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that only 43% of all his targets were deemed catchable. It's something around that. Something around that. It was in the 40s. Yeah, somewhere in the 40s. Only below 50% of all his targets were even deemed catchable. So this means maybe Andy Dalton overthrew him, underthrew him, just just missed him. All under 50% of all his targets were actually catchable and he still caught 21 catches, 210 yards, not that much, but to me, it's his red zone red zone ability for someone who's small like that. You don't you don't typically view them as um someone who would be a big red zone threat. But I had a post on my page and I broke down his um red zone ability. He has a very tremendous release, which when you're in the red zone, ninety nine percent of the time. The opposing defense will be impressed coverage when you're in that close and like within the five yard line. Ninety percent of the time they will be playing press coverage. However, you know, last year obviously with Terrell Austin for some reason we weren't playing press. But that's it on a different note. Ninety-nine percent of all de- defenses will probably be impressed coverage. So it is essential for you to have an excellent release in order to get open in the end zone. And as I broke down in my post, his uh, release is like almost unstoppable unstoppable to guard. And he has a tremendous ability to break break off the line and has tremendous footwork and change of direction to get open a lot, like a lot. Unusually, an unusual amount for someone his size to be open that much. Obviously we we had, you know, Andy out for half the year and even with Andy in, you know, other than the first four games, he he wasn't, you know, top notch. And I I just and to add on to that, it is um forty three percent only forty three percent catchable passes his one to three touchdown catch ratio is leading the team in touchdowns. His tremendous release in the, the red zone to add also being his redshirt rookie year to add on to all of that. He was being misutilized and poorly coached by Marvin Lewis and the rest of the staff and coming into a, um, coming into a Taylor offense, I see him getting either like a similar role to Cooper Cup or Brandon Cooks. Um, either way, that's a Cooks or Cup role. He has a much, much better. Um, that's a much, much better system and scheme than for him than with Marvin Lewis. And also on top of that, just another thing. Um. Obviously, Taylor, back with the Rams, he has experience with dealing with a successful speedy pers- speedy receiver with Brandon Cooks. Obviously, he was not the head coach. Obviously, he was not the offensive coordinator. But nonetheless, he still had the experience 
of a successful and very good speedy receiver in his offensive scheme. Well, not his offensive scheme, but in his offense. He has that experience, so he knows what to do with Ross, and I think that'll be a huge plus for him. Yep. He basically nailed everything with Ross there, and yeah, it just blows my mind how what a horrible job Bill Lazor did with the Ross. I mean, he yeah, he used him right in the red zone, but just between the 20s, my God. Just make him run a streak and hope Andy or Driscoll could hit him. Play calling was so pathetic, and it was weird. Bill Lazor started off the year strong last year, coming off all this creative shit, then the defenses started adjusting, and he failed to adjust. Two years straight, that happened then. I think that one drive against the Saints, the opening, our opening drive against the Saints, I think that was his best coach drive of the season. I think he did an excellent job. He was mirroring what the Saints did with Taysom Hill using Jeff Driscoll, and I loved that creativity. I loved using Jeff Driscoll as a, in a similar role as Taysom Hill. I thought that was very, I thought I thought that was very clever, and I think that would also be a good thing for us to do this season. Use Jeff Driscoll in a Taysom Hill type um, role. I think that'd be, I think that could work really well for us this year if we were to do that. But I doubt we will. Yeah, probably not. And it's funny because then after that first drive against the Saints, Bill Lazor went back to crap. Saints adjusted pretty quickly, and you know, Saints was the game that got Terrell Austin fired. It's funny because, like, we all knew we were going to get butt raped by the Saints offense, but then Drew Brees was asked if basically did the Bengals do anything new to try and stop him, or did they try and do anything special? And he just said, nope, they did everything we expected. The, that game showed the, how predictable and simple Austin was, and yeah, he had, yeah, I can't believe people were trying to argue him to stay. Yeah. The the one thing that annoyed me so much is when Zim Zim Huday um he was trying to he wasn't necessarily defending Austin but he was saying he wasn't the problem and it was Taylor and it was um excuse me it was Bill Lazor I agree Bill Lazor was not is not a good offensive coordinator and he was not a good offensive coordinator and he was not doing a good job he was not getting our offense into scoring, giving our offense scoring chances and giving, putting our offense in the right place. However, he was a problem. However, I think I think Austin was a much bigger problem because when you're when the opposing team is getting fifty eight points a game, you can't defend. You can't defend your defensive coordinator and say your offense should put up 58 points as well. Because that, that's just not realistic. I think, well, when an opponent scores 50, I think it's only been three times in NFL history where the other team has also scored 50. So, like, like, I I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, like, 90% sure the exact words... Zim said was some okay. It was something along the lines of instead of attacking Austin for allowing fifty, how about you attack 
laser from not scoring 52 or so it was something around i just i i just don't like zim Hude's like viewpoints on how to run or t- how our team is run and what what you know coaching schemes and different scenarios and etc yeah and i I knew where Zim was coming from, but my main problem with Austin was it's not that talent was the issue, it was his play calling. It's he didn't kind of put two and two together that William Jackson, Drake, or Patrick should be impressed. He let yeah, offenses for- manipulate him, and it's like even if it's third and long, he wouldn't, ha- he would have the base defense out there if the offense had two tight ends in, even though it was obviously it was going to be a passing situation. Then it's just all that. I mean, there's a reason our defense was getting torched. We had the talent, but his play con was bringing us down that much. Yeah, that Saints game was a perfect example of why Austin sucks. It had everything he did wrong that entire season all put up into one game, especially his press coverage with William Jackson and Drake Patrick. That was managed terribly. We would be... What was it? I think it was... I forget which drive it was, but it was was it was it Thomas's second touchdown or first? I don't know. I remember his first but, touchdown wasn't a, even a touchdown. The ball hit the ground. Yeah, the, that one from the back angle, it was clear as they hit the ground. Um, but it was the other touchdown that um that uh he was he did a. I'm pretty sure it was just a slant, a simple slant, and. The, Jackson wasn't in press because Austin didn't put him in press. And in the end zone, if you have a slant call and your cornerback is not pressing them, I don't care who your cornerback is. I don't care how bad the wide receiver is. The slant will win every single time. If you're on yeah, and we saw the, like, the three Colts. yard line having a slant, you can't win. That's impossible. That's an impossible situation yep. you're putting your cornerback in if you don't put them in press. And we saw it with the Colts against T.Y. Hilton. I remember it was either the first or touchdown for the Colts. The Colts were on the six, five, or four-yard line. They had William Jackson eight yards off. Yeah, he, he was like in the middle of the <laughs> Yeah, and I, I'm just watching. I'm like, what? He was literally like in the – he was like standing on the seat. Of the Colts. <laughs> yeah. I was like, why do you have him so far back? Yeah, and people were roasting William Jackson. I'm like, kind of impossible there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just stuff like that. Like, yeah, there's going to be times where, especially against teams like the Saints and the Chiefs, where there's the talent's just going to override the defense. That was going to happen, but you have to at least put your defense in a position to compete. And Austin put them in the worst position. And even after Austin got fired, William Jackson said, I can finally be me again. And I think that kind of shows you that the players did not like Terrell Austin. After, yeah, after Austin got fired, he got fired after the Week 10 game against the Saints. Week 11 through 17, William Jackson and Drake Kirkpatrick, no, no, Drake Kirkpatrick and William Jackson were the best and second best, respectively, in Yards per coverage, lowest yards per coverage snap allowed. They were the two best cornerbacks in the league in terms of yards per snap. And that just goes to show 
how deadly our secondary can be if put into the right situation, which Terrell Austin was not doing. Yeah. And that's why I'm kind of intrigued for Lou Anaruma. I know every coach talked about playing players to their strengths, so it'll be interesting to see if he can actually do that. But if he can, then, I mean, I'm our secondary should be a bright spot. And something else I had an issue with Austin was his whole defensive plan was – let them drive down the field, but eventually we're going to turn it over or we're going to sack them to ruin yeah, the Yeah, sacrifice yards for turnovers. Yeah, then we Great saw against plan. the Bucks. It doesn't work like that. We had four interceptions, we six had... sacks, and boom. Yeah, if you look, like, if someone just took out wide out, like a wide out and just covered the box, the uh, box score, the, the yards allowed, and you just looked at every other defensive thing, you're like, oh, dang. The Bengals killed them defensively. And then you take off the whiteout and you see like 500 something yards. It's, it's when you think about when you just, when you just like glance over it, let's, we'll give them a couple more yards, but then we'll turn it over. You're like, oh, great plan. But then you look into it deeper and you're like, give them yards and we'll turn it over. Yeah. Give them yards and then we'll turn. That doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. Also, I think in Arumo, having him, a uh, longtime defensive back coach, as our defensive coordinator, dis- despite not ever having coordinator experience before, like serious coordinator experience, um, I think. I think that's a great addition for us, especially since our secondary is arguably the strongest point of our defense, having uh, Bates, Williams, Jackson, um, Kirkpatrick, Denard, and also B.W. Webb, who I think is going to be a surprise player on the team. I think he's going to do a lot better than most people think. Having all of those people coached by a defensive back, a long-time defensive back coach, which is now defensive coordinator, I think that'll be a huge plus for our secondary and will just strengthen our strength. Yeah, for sure. However, I do want to mention that Terrell Austin was a – his coaching career building up to being a defensive coordinator was as a defensive backs coach. I don't think that's a lock, but with the guy like Anna Rimo, just based off what we heard, he – should be better than Austin. Yeah, I mean, can't get in, worse in than Austin. I, I think it was... I can't remember it off of the top of my head, but it's well over a decade. I think it's around two decades. Mate, mate, yeah, I think it's around two decades of being a defensive back coach from college all the way to the NFL. And he's he's been one of the most... From what we've heard, he's been one of the most respected... Um, Defensive back, one of the most defense. I cannot speak. Talking hard. Yes, yes, it is. He's been one of the most well-respected assistant coaches in the NFL, according to multiple reports. And you don't respect is earned. You have to. You you have to be good. You have to be a good coach in order to gain respect as a coach, and. I just I, I have high expectations for our secondary this year coming in as a already top secondary plus now what we have as a 
defensive back coach coaching our defense. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Covered it, and I'm, I'm just intrigued. I'm also to see what they do with the linebackers because, you know, I think we all kind of forgot the Bengals gave Preston Brown a pretty god-awful contract that was worth too much that – it was pretty similar to Bobby Hart's contract, I think, worth a little more. And basically what they said is they think injuries were the reason why he struggled so much last year. And I think that is true. He wasn't as good as he was compared to Buffalo. But they're kind of paying him like they expect him to be a three-down linebacker. But Preston has never in his career been good in any passing situations. Even though he played a lot of it in Buffalo, I mean, he played 100% of the snaps in Buffalo on defense, but he's always been really bad in coverage. And apparently he's lost some weight, but losing weight doesn't make you get in coverage. So I kind of, my kind of hope right now is obviously Jermaine Pratt's going to be the starter in base, but the nickel linebackers are going to be Preston Brown and Nick Vigil. I'm kind of hoping that either they have a consistent rotation between Brown and Pratt and Nickel, or that Pratt or Pratt Brown starts off the year, but then as the season goes on, they realize Preston isn't that good. They start to rotate Pratt in a little more because I just don't. Pratt is somebody who's really good at covering tight ends, and Preston just doesn't do well in coverage. So I wonder how he's going to handle that. Yeah, I think people look back at that Colts game. That first game of the season, Preston Brown, I mean, he had a pretty decent day in coverage, but that was probably one of his only good coverage games of the season. Obviously, you know, he missed time with the injury, but that Colts game, uh, I think lots of people overrate his coverage abilities because of that game, and it just gives people a false sense of hope for Preston Brown in coverage when he's really not that he's more of a traditional linebacker, um, you know, a run stopper, not much coverage. Yeah. And even though the interception was kind of nice, it's not like he made a play on the ball. He tipped the ball because luck in his first row back from missing like 10 years, didn't throw it all that well. Preston got a hand on it, tipped the intercept. It's not like he made some crazy play. And even later in the game, before Preston got hurt, he on those drag routes, you can start to see where his athleticism was hurting him. And yeah. and the one thing I will say is you don't want Pratt as a three-down linebacker this year. So that's why I'm not too mad at the idea of him starting nickel. But if they just have Brown nickel and don't even give Pratt a chance, then we're facing some serious situations like last year where just a bad linebacker play can kill the defense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, then we've been talking about the Bengals for a while. I say we kind of change it up and let's talk about some stranger things. That's just kind of good. Yeah. So if, you, so if you're not a fan of stranger things, stop ahead. listening now. Spoilers ahead, obviously. Spoilers ahead. Yeah, I haven't listened to Stranger Things. Turn it off. Stranger Things is the only thing we're going to be talking about in this podcast from now on. It's There's more no important thing. than the Bengals. There's no more Bengals stuff. You're good. Yeah, fuck the you Bengals. They're bull- <laughs> if you haven't seen Stranger Things, turn off the podcast. Three, two, one. All right. If you haven't watched and you're still listening, then you're an idiot. 
Let's start talking. All right, so Stranger Things Season 3 personally was probably my favorite season. Definitely a lot better than Season 2, which I felt Season 2 was a little bit out of touch compared to Season 1. And I like what they did with some of the character arcs, and obviously there's a lot to talk about, but let's start with the Russian code. I know you have some pretty strong feelings about that. Um, The Russian code is complete bullshit. So the Russian code, it's something like, Something, something, the silver cat, something, something, but it's something, it's, oh, what is it? Okay, it's, okay, I tried remembering off the top of my head. I can't Hold on, I'll look it up. Okay, yeah, yeah, we can look it up. It's, it's, it's something silver cat, something about nice Chinese, if you tread lightly, blue, but yeah, look it up, look it up the exact thing. I'm trying to find music. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think it was, I don't think it was total bullshit. I think it was bullshit. I think it was the only way they could get them down into Russian base. And I I don't think it was useless, but there's definitely, from a logical standpoint, a better way the Russians should have done that. Yeah, okay. Um, so, did you pull up the code? The- I'm trying to find it. Everybody, uh, the week is long. Silver cat feeds when blue meets yellow in the west. A trip okay, wait, wait. to China that, sounds nice. Say that part could. by part. Say that part by part. The week is long. That the didn't sil- stand for anything. Yeah. The, the silver sil- cat stood for the delivery guy. Yeah. Continue. Silver cat feeds when blue meets yellow in the west. Blue meets the yellow in the west. Is the clock? I'll get to that in a second. Continue with it. Okay. The last part: a trip to China sounds nice if you tread lightly. So a trip to China sounds nice. That was the Chinese store. If you tread lightly, that was the shoe store. The shoe store did not involve anything with the actual drop off of the stuff. The Chinese food that could be interpreted as you know, the Chinese boxes they were delivered in. It was the, I, hold on, I have it up right here. Sh- that kind of explains it. Sh- sh- Imperial Panda. Huh, what? What'd you say? It's Imperial Panda the in the food court. Yeah, okay. That does not. Um, so the Chinese food, you could interpret that as what they were delivering because they were delivering the green goo in the... Um, the Chinese boxes, but why would the Russians need a code for the boxes they're already using? So, to me, to me, how I interpret it is that the Chinese, a trip to China sounds nice if you tread lightly, is a location. It's saying the Chinese restaurant and the shoe store are in here. The location is the mall. The silver I think- cat... The sh- the silver cat is delivered. So deliver the goo at the mall. And then here's the important part. The clock comes in. It's um blue when blue meets yellow in the west. If you look at an analog clock, you have, you know, 12 at the top and 6 at the bottom. And blue, which 
We'll say I forget which one was which. But it doesn't blue matter. is the long we'll, one. We'll say blue. Okay, blue is the minute hand, and yellow is the hour hand. The hour hand meets the minute hand six times on the left side of the clock, which left side would be west. Because if you're if you're assuming direct west, if you're assuming like west west. That would be like nine nine forty five. In nine forty five, blue does not even meet uh yellow. The hour the hour hand is pointing between nine and ten, closer to ten. And the minute hand is right on the nine. They don't even they don't touch. The times they do touch is roughly six thirty three. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's uh, roughly 633, 7.37, 8.42-ish, 43.43, 8.43, and then 9.43. Hold on, I'm thinking about this in my head. Nine. Uh, hold, sh- sh- nine. I didn't say anything. <laughs> You're just assuming. Nine. What would that be? Nine. 43, I think. Yeah, it would be. Hold up. Yeah, around. No, no. No, 843. No. Uh, or around that. But I'm, just so you know, I'm, I looked nine, it up. It was. It is a plot holds. It is technically supposed to be nine forty-five. Okay, shut sure. up. Uh, hold on, I'm saying so, you're right. That the show I'm messed still up. Still talking. I'm still talking. So it's roughly around nine forty. Hold up, so that's nine forty-five. It's roughly around nine forty-eight-ish, and then it's ten. It's like around ten fifty something, and then eleven fifty-nine. So there's there's six different things. So if you're receiving this Russian code, how on earth are you going to know which time is the correct time from six different ones? How do they know? Because they already knew. They all, there's no way you could tell which time is the correct time if there are six different blue meets the West. I mean, blue meets, the, meets yellow in the West. There are six different times blue meets yellow. So you can't determine which time is the correct time unless you already had some other idea or you somehow already knew. So if you already knew the time, then you don't need the blue meets west. You have green goo and you have it in boxes and you know you're supposed to deliver. So you don't need the delivery. You don't need the silver cap. The China and the shoe store, as I said, that's a location. How would they not know they're supposed to deliver to a mall with a Russian base? I kind of have an answer for that. There's, you, there's, so basically the three parts of the code was delivery at the mall at one of these six times. 
They already knew at the time. Obviously, they know to deliver at the mall, and obviously, they are delivering. So, to me, there is no purpose for this code. There is no purpose for this code. The Russians did not need to use this code at all. The only reason this code was in the show was either A, it's a plot hole, or B, the Russians wanted to get found. They wanted to get found. Obviously, A is much more likely, but let's assume B is correct, and the Russians did want to get found. Why would they want to get found? Well, <laughs> let's, let's take a looky-looky. I mean, look at Alexi. Let's take a looky-looky. Alexi was the lead scientist, as we saw in the first episode of the season. He was the lead scientist on trying to create this laser. He was the number one scientist, because the other scientists got choked to death, and then the general dude was like, you're in charge now. He was the lead yeah, scientist. Yeah, one year. Yet, he easily gave away everything. He told him XYZ. This is how you do it. The lead scientist of a classified Russian undercover mission gave away everything just like that to a a cop in the middle of nowhere. He did no, th- does he, that make sense? Does that make sense? He gave it to uh... Russia, one of the the, the the one of the one of the top countries in the world had a secret uh, undercover mission in a foreign country led by one lead scientist who that one lead scientist also gave away all the information to this cop named Hopper <laughs> who has been in the upside down. Ah, uh-huh, uh-huh. So when they go to destroy the laser, poof, he's dead. No, he's not. Where is he? Where is he? Hmm? When, when it blew up, there was no damage. The catwalk was not damaged. The walls were not damaged. The hole just closed. The, the uh, gate just closed. The glass from the, the control room didn't even break. There was no damage. But as it was exploding, we saw the scientist, the Russian scientists in the hazmat suits. We saw them standing, watching the laser blow up. They all zapped. And, like, you know, they turned into, like, that same type of melted human goo stuff that the, um, the mind flayer was made out of. It was that same type of just melted human. Um, but when you look at where Hopper was standing, there was no melted human. There was no remains of him. There was no damage to the catwalk. The catwalk was still there. There was no damage to the walls. There was no damage to anything. The only damage that happened was some Russian scientists melting, but Hopper didn't melt. Why didn't he melt? And there was no... there. I mean, sure, the catwalk, I mean, it wasn't a complete solid ground, so maybe he slipped through the holes of it and fell to wherever the bottom of that was, of that room was. But you would have seen, like, the sludge of the the melted human stuff 
falling through the grates, but you didn't see that. And then at the end of the season, ah, ah, not the American. Mm -mm, They're in the prison, not the American. They go take the other guy and feed him to the Demogorgon. Not the American. Who's American? Who? Who's American that you know? <laughs> Hopper. That and they kept referring laser. to him as the American throughout this. Throughout that season laser three. Blew up and teleported Hopper or opened some type of portal and got Hopper into Russian. Um, into to Russian, what's the word? Custody. And he's being held in a cell. Why would they want him? I don't know. Why are they trying to open a gate to the upside down? Hmm, I don't know. But look at this kind of man who's been in the upside down. Hmm, maybe he knows some inside information about the upside down, the place that we just spent a whole bunch of scientists and resources to develop in a totally different country. The Russians wanted to get found. They created a totally bullshit code for a whole bunch of kids that have already thwarted the um, Upside Down's plans because they knew they were smart, so they found it. And then, boom, they led Hopper right to the laser, which was their portal, teleported them to Russia. He's in Russian custody. The Russians wanted to get found. The code was meant for them to get found. And Hopper is still alive and in Russian custody. I wonder if your first option is more just a plot hole. I mean, the, uh, <laughs> you kind of went on a ramble there. But, I mean, the tread lightly and a trip to China, that was the location outside the mall, which it's still a massive reach, but that does have a quote-unquote role. A stupid one, I agree. But essentially the only reason it was in the show is to get the kids down there. But, I mean, your theory isn't too yeah, off. The I only mean, reason it was in the show, it served a purpose in the show to get the kids down there. But, but to the from Russians, a logical standpoint, this would never happen. Like the Russians being one the second most powerful country at the time would have found a more efficient way to give out a code or to communicate. They wouldn't do it like that. They, they would be smarter than to use a code with with a um one of the little rocking horse things playing in the background. Yeah. Why do they have the uh, also, yeah, there wasn't even a rocky thing another, where the guy yeah, gave code <laughs> Is we saw the scientists in the underground bunker walk by a dude giving the code. So that means they're giving the code in the underground bunker, but there are no horse thingy robbers in the bunker. So that's another problem. Yeah, I mean, I recently rewatched after I watched season three. I, I completely rewatched all Stranger Things. There are so many plot holes in the show that just because the show's so good, you overlook. But when you actually go into detail, you're like, what? Like Mike being kidnapped and how they became suspicious of the lab in the first season. If you remember, Mike disappeared in his shed, or that's where the Demogorgon took him, but he fell his fell off his bike by the sewage pipe that led into the lab and a piece of his clothes there. And that's what made Hopper and other policemen check it out, but the lab switched the security footage of the night, which kind of makes no sense considering Will never went into the lab. So, but they needed a way to, for them to be suspicious of the lab. So there's a lot of things about Stranger Things that has potholes that just don't make sense. 
Yeah. Um. Also, side note: moving away from the Russian code thing, I still do believe Hopper is alive. Um. I mean, yeah, yeah I think he is the guy. I mean, as I said earlier, he kept being referred to as an American, and I personally, I don't like it. I feel like that's such a cliche move, and also, like the lot. They're going to have to do a lot of explaining between the portals and how he could have got oh, to I, Russia. I, I, already, I already did the explaining. Well, the Russians, I know. But that's Russians, just kind of... Uh, no, no, the Russians wanted to get into the upside down, so they build a laser to try and puncture a hole. Their gate to the um, upside down is too strong. So they go to America, where the gate has recently been opened, so it's weaker. They spent a whole bunch of resources into this laser um, to get to the upside down because they're invested in getting to the get opening the gate. But <laughs> they they're they're smart. They're at the time, you know, they're the second best country in the world. They have surveillance and stuff, and ah, they know this one Hopper dude right here. Hmm. What is he up to? Oh, he's been to that place we're trying to get to. Let's uh, teleport him. Would you Would you care to explain to me how Hopper is dead? Where are his remains? Oh, his I mean, son? I believe he's alive. Exactly. Yeah, I just don't like the decision. Like, I feel it's just such a TV and movie cliche you see all the time, and they're doing and throughout the season they're being really good about avoiding those cliches and. It just feels like a cheap move. It kind of feels like a Marvel move, not killing off the main hero. And I feel watch. like that just would have been a good way. Just watch, watch. Season four is going to come out, and we're going to find out that the Russians all along wanted to get caught, and they created a bullshit. And why, why would the code be so easy to crack as well? So the kids could People, get in there, no, obviously. As know, we said, it's a no, plot hole. I know. I know. I'm saying from a Russian standpoint, why would it be so easy that people who don't even speak the language are able to crack it in like one day? People that don't speak the language cracked it in one day. Does that sound like top two country in the world to you? No. No. Remember, the Russians are morons, though. The, co- the code is bullshit. They wanted oh, yeah. to get caught. They wanted to get Hopper. They wanted to know more about... Because obviously, look, at the very end, they have the Demogorgon as a pet. Obviously, they're very invested of turning the Upside Down into their own personal weapon, into their own personal vendetta. How do they get there? Let's build a laser. Oh, the laser didn't work? How about this dude who's been there? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm just saying, though, other than some of the information he can get, there's nothing he could possibly tell them that would give them, like, a Russia a big-ass advantage in the Cold War or whatever. So that's why I just think it's a plot hole. Then they ended up finding Hopper some way in the Upside Down. And I, I, would, I know it's not going to be him, but I would like to see the American be Dr. Brenner somehow just because there's an untold story between Eleven and him. I feel like you can finish off that story in season four. I also saw some speculation, which I know it's not possible, that somehow the mayor, but we saw him get arrested, so it's definitely not him. 
Also, let's go back to um, uh, what was it? Episode seven, I think, from from Stranger Things season two, with the the whole sister thing. I did not like that. Everyone was like, "Oh, this is totally bullshit." What's the point of this? And some people were like, "Oh, maybe it's explained in season three. Maybe they have some type of multiple people attack." Here we're in season three. That never happens. So looking back, that was a totally bullshit filler episode. Yeah, I did not like that. Yeah, I'm, that's why season two is my least favorite. Just that whole thing was completely unnecessary. Yeah, it was. It was such a cliche, like, "Oh, I'm learning who I am" type thing. That's like in everything. Yeah. That was definitely not my favorite, but the one thing we did get from that was Brenner is alive. Maybe he's not in the prison, but he is alive somewhere. I would like to see them finish off that story between yeah, Eleven. That's, that's a loose end they need to tie up in season four. Yeah. Then uh, let's go to some of the smaller stuff. I kind of like that they didn't make Steven Robin date, but my only problem was they kind of – until Robin revealed that she was lesbian. Throughout season three, they, they kept dropping hints that they were going on a date. Like, there was a bang that scared them. Then Steve and Robin were holding hands. And it kind of seemed like they were flirting half the time. And I'm like... And I don't want to get political with with this stuff. But just from a standard point, like, if a person knows a gay or lesbian, then why are they flirting? Why are they doing that stuff? So that was kind of my only problem with that. But I'm glad that they avoided that dating cliche. And I do like the scene how they made Robin come out. It didn't take away from the plot. It wasn't forced. I thought that was really well done. Also, how did Eleven lose her powers? Because the last thing she did is she pulled that tiny little, like, what, what is that even called? Yeah, like it's that's not the most we saw her use her power. Yeah, what are we gonna call it? Just melted human, we'll we'll call it melted human meat. Yeah, sure, that works. She was pulling the melted human meat out of her leg and then she threw it. How I don't understand how how that how that's supposed to make her lose her power. That's something they need to explain. Yeah, that was because that's gonna be a serious plot hole if they have her like without power, like. If they start off season four not being able to use her power, like if they make that a big part of the plot line, then that's going to be a huge plot hole. Yeah, then you have to explain it somehow in some way. We're going to have a lot. Because, I mean, if they just brush it off in season two, like, like I mean, season four, like the first episode, she gets it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of blow it off. Then it'll be, I guess, just kind of, It'll be fine, but if they have it like a serious plot plot line in season four, then they have lots of explaining to do. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I was going to say that will be interesting. To see. I wonder what season. Well, I think we're going to see a little more Cold War action season four. Maybe a road trip to Russia, especially if it is Hopper and the Russian cell. They go on a trip to save him. Which we don't even know what season four is going to be about. We just know it's happened. I kind of found it. I kind of like their the Russian built in the mall analogy, kind of imp- because back then 
odds are if you're listening to this podcast, you're kind of on the younger side. The malls in the 70s and 80s were kind of seen as bad, ruining businesses. So I kind of like the creative analogy of the Russians building the mall, of bad guys building a bad thing for the town. Yeah. Good creative points. And uh, something, just some other small stuff to notice. It'll be interesting to see what they do with what's his name, Will in season four, they kind of didn't have as big role. He was kind of used as a setup for the mind flares. Like he his neck gets cold and he's there. The radar. He yeah. was like a human radar. Yeah. We didn't see much character growth. Like we saw him destroy castle buyers after him. And when Will tells him that not my fault, you don't like girls, we're all grown up, in which yeah, some people that, are thinking that's a gay scene. And yeah, personally, I don't think about it's... how he's dead. I don't, I don't, yeah, no, I'm with you because he spent, you know, like a whole year inside the upside down with a thing up his throat and not being, it was technically a week. Everyone, but was the everyone else was growing up, he was stuck down there, he never got to live. The rest of his childhood so i think you don't like girls i think that's just him still being a little boy oh cuties you know yeah it was implied with the scene before and after with him wanting to play games and then then the then mike said did you really think we weren't ever going to get girlfriends and we were just going to stay in your basement and play games then yeah, you saw will destroy castle buyers and yeah because he realized Every one of his, he he has all these childish things, and he he's realizing all my friends have grown up without me, and that's yeah. why he destroys fire castle buyers and stuff. Yeah, and also if he was gay, that then that as... make Mike look like a total douche the way he said it, and that's yeah, something that, you don't run with yeah. one of your main guys. I mean, they kind of left the door open for him to be gay, and I don't have well, a problem. I mean, it was it was his. mainly it was mainly Noah left the door open from being gay because in an interview with Noah, whatever his last name is, the dude who plays Will, um, he was like, his, his sexuality is up for interpretation. He didn't really... Yeah. It's kind of left... Which means just, he didn't have the power to say what yeah, he exactly, actually was. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean... I mean, well, it's something to keep eye on, but I think people were kind of looking too much into that. Yeah, people were... Also... The one scene when, after, um, after, when, after Hopper died, when the military came and everyone was coming back up, when, um, What's-Her-Face hugged Will, and then Eleven was, you know, looking for Hopper. I don't, I don't get how, like, uh, what's her, what's her name? Um, Will's mom, Will's mom, what's her name? Uh, oh, God, Joyce. And yeah, I'm, I'm bad with names. Um, Joyce. <laughs> Joyce was like hugging him. She had her chin tucked in his shoulder, and then she just kind of glanced, barely able to see that her eyes are looking at Eleven. And somehow Eleven knew that meant that he was dead. Because that was that was kind of a re- like, like it, it's not really a reach, but I mean, I mean it's logical, especially it's, you it's see logical. one person come saying, up. I'm and... just saying that's like it's kind of it, it's it's like um imagine. Imagine like I don't know I don't know I don't I don't know an analogy. In analogy. I know what you 
I know what you're trying to say. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, then do you I, catch the glance of Dr. Sam Owens? Oh, what'd you say? Say that again? Uh, go ahead. I mean, oh, basically, what'd you say? I just mentioned that Dr. Sam Owens showed up there for a solid minute to keep things in check. Yeah. Or go ahead without me interrupting right. this time. So I was, I'm, I'm basically just trying to say, I don't, I don't think that was an adequate, like if I was 11, I wouldn't assume Hopper's dead just but because Joyce didn't really, she didn't really do anything. She just kind of looked at, but not, she just kind of barely looked at 11. She didn't really look at 11 either. Cause she was, she had like her chin tucked in Will's shoulder. Hugging him. I don't know. Yeah. It's a small thing. Maybe about. she put two and two together. Oh. Yeah. Joyce is really sad. Oh, Popper didn't come up while everybody else has. I mean, I've never yeah. had to experience things that way, so I can't actually say the legitimacy of it, I guess. Yeah. But then, uh, I like how they kind of humanized Billy. Like, I liked him in season two, but they just kind of made him this douche without reasoning that we kind of, I like that we saw what made him to be. And I thought that was very realistic and thing to happen. And the, I just loved how they humanized Billy this series or this how season. Do you, how do you think the mind player died? Do you think it was the gate closing or do you think it was killing the primary host? Uh, I think it had to be the Billy, gate. Billy was technically the primary host. He was like, you know, the first host. He was what it was stemming off of. And Brossel the gate closed. But, I mean, they killed the primary host. So, it's, it's, I mean, it's kind of a mix of both. But, I mean, it's just like. Didn't the Mind Flayer kill Billy, though? Yeah. After they, Billy that's, held it off. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Billy is like technically the primary host. He's like, you know, the, what they were, what they were feeding off the most. He was like the primary host, and so when they killed their primary host, they don't have anything to live off of. And so it's just, it's not really important to s- decide was it Billy's death that caused the Mind Flayer's death, or was it the gate closed? It doesn't really matter. It's just kind of something fun to think about. Yeah, and we could go on about that. I'm sure some. I'm sure if we ask the Duffer brothers or one of the screenwriters, there's a logical explanation that they could easily explain to us. So maybe that's something else we'll see. Then all we know about season four, the Demogorgon's back. Now is it Dustin's Demogorgon? And the Russians got hold of it. Mm-hmm. Then we see a reunion and Dustin has that candy and they all get along. If it is Dustin's Demogorgon, then that's that's like that's extra to my theory that the Russians have been spying on Hawkins and they know about um Hopper. That's extra fuel to my theory. I don't think it is personal. I think if it was Dustin, I think that would be a reach. Obviously, it's not. But if it that would be a reach. If it obviously it's not, but if it was, that's extra fuel for my theory. Yeah, yeah. 
For sure, for sure. No, I think we covered all the main points that the people want to hear about. I think anything else is ex- being a bit extreme with the nitpicking. And I think that brings us towards the end of the episode. Uh, thanks again for joining us. And do you have any articles you're working on for the website? Um, yeah, I have one on BWF. It's going to be coming out soon. Make sure you guys, just in case... Just in case you guys didn't know, along with running Cincy underscore Bengals underscore daily, he's also a writer for us at Bengals Insiders, one of our more smart and creative writers. So when his piece comes out, make sure you check on that. And, yeah, thank you for staying up and doing this long podcast. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you being on. And I'll let you go to bed. It's 12.51 a.m. So we've been doing this for a little under an hour and a half, but – It was fun. All right. See ya.